Hello, and welcome to Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where we talk about all the things with a social work perspective. I'm your host, Hallie Harris, and I am a hospice social worker. Today, I have a special guest with me. This is Dana. Say hello, Dana. Hello there. And she works at a local hospice as well. And we are finally going to bring you the myths of hospice. This is something I've been talking about since I think episode two, when I did hospice is not a four-letter word. And what really spurned this on, not only because I did want to get to this topic, because it's important. It is. But because there was a story in the news this week on national news, and although the story was about doctors giving information, specifically terminal information, via robot, which is not really a robot, but it's a screen on a device that looks like a robot, the underpinning of that story was that the doctor made a comment that said that we can give you morphine, this is a quote, we, will, we can give you morphine, it will make you comfortable, but it might suppress your breathing. Do you understand what I'm saying? So let's kind of break into that, that uh, story now, and then we'll get to the rest of the myths. This is rooted also in the same myth that I talked about in that very first episode, where people often get the impression that morphine killed their family member. Absolutely. We hear that <clears throat> a lot. That can happen for a lot of reasons, but I think the one I see the most often is when people's family members are pretty close to death by the time they come to hospice, Mm -hmm. and they are being given a small amount of morphine to control symptoms Mm -hmm. uh, in a very specific dose, starting with the, the smallest dose. I mean, it's funny when you actually see a dose of this morphine is so small, it doesn't look like it would do anything. It looks like it's like three drops. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so it's only used as needed up to the level needed to control symptoms. And unfortunately, their family member likely was very close to death anyway. And so once they are able to relax with that morphine, then they're able to settle in and sometimes they let die go. because they let go and they're they're finally comfortable after however long it's been. Mm-hmm. And that can definitely appear to a family member as though morphine killed my family member. Mm-hmm. I totally get that. I can understand not having any experience with it before. If that was the first thought, it would feel that way. Mm-hmm. In particular, when a family member has not been sick for a long time, if this, this was a sudden onset of some particular disease, and they had been fine up until a month ago or a week ago. And then they could get to hospice and then they die. Mm-hmm. They probably likely would have died within hours or days of when they actually died, regardless of morphine. But I totally understand and I want to be sympathetic to people that have had that experience and felt that way uh, because it's understandable. And one other thing we see, Hallie, is that often family members will not be at their loved one's side all the time. Mm-hmm. They come, they live out of town, they'll come in and visit. And we know that people will rally when there's a visitor. They will perk up, they'll be excited, they actually look very alert. And that family member will go home and say, hey, mom looks pretty good. And then they'll get the news that that afternoon she died. And it's shocking to them because they don't expect that. Yeah, that's a that's a great point as well. So yeah, lots of avenues and context 
to people having morphine, but this particular story really bothered me because I think, number one, they didn't address it in the story. What they were addressing was getting terminal news um, by a machine, which is a whole other thing that we're not really going to get into. But without having any other context, hearing a professional, a medical professional say, I can give you morphine, but it may kill you, basically, mm-hmm. is just perpetuating that myth. And then when they come to hospice and they really could benefit from and even extend their life by having their symptoms controlled mm-hmm. by a little bit of morphine, but they won't do it because they're terrified. Yep. And, and it's, so it's horrible because it's probably the number one myth I run into mm-hmm. is that I don't want to go on hospice because I know when you go on hospice, you're given morphine and then you die. Yeah. I hear that so often. Yeah. And so we just want to really take the time at this moment to make sure that that is understood as a myth. Yes, of course, any amount of any drug can kill someone. But the amount, you know, if you're in a hospice, I'm assuming that they're a reputable hospice and doing what they're supposed to be doing, Mm -hmm. that they're not going to be over prescribing. They're going to start at the lowest possible dose and increase as needed as the patient experiences those symptoms and how they react. You know, some people are really sensitive to medications and we have to start at a even lower dose than normal. Some people have built up a tolerance because they have other things going on. And so they may need a higher dose and that low dose isn't enough. So those are all factors that have to be taken into account by the nurse and the doctor that are constantly monitoring that situation. It's not going to kill you. What's going to kill you on hospice is your disease. Yep. Your terminal illness is what ultimately is what you die from. Yeah. And morphine gets such a bad rap in addition, I think, because of the big opioid crisis we have going on right now. So people have a huge fear. I think our nurses and doctors and our social workers will hear, well, I don't want to take morphine because I don't want to get addicted. Mm -hmm. And it's an absolutely valid thought that morphine can be an addicting drug. But to go back to what Hallie was saying, Our doctors and our nurses look at the lowest possible, least amount of medication that will um, provide the best possible relief. So they don't start off with the big guns. They start off with the slow doses. They evaluate how that is for the patient, and then they titrate up slowly. So the other portion of that, of course, is that someone with a terminal illness really doesn't need to be concerned about an addiction because they don't have the time in their life left to become addicted. Yeah, you're as you're talking, I'm trying I'm listening to you and then I'm thinking of all these other tangents. Uh, morphine, of course, for our older folks and folks that may have been in places like Vietnam or World War II, mm-hmm. saw morphine given on the battlefield for extreme circumstances and they may have overdosed their patients at that time because they're treating field trauma. That's not the same clinical use as we would use in a hospital or in a hospice. So that was my first thought as you were saying that. Um, My second thought was, yes, absolutely, this opioid epidemic has people on itch about Mm -hmm. this. Um, We also use the drug fentanyl. And we've also been getting some pushback about that as well, because the fentanyl on the news is, oh, my God, you can't even be in the room with it. It'll kill you. Mm -hmm. And that those fentanyl 
doses are a hundred times or more more potent than what we're using on top of which they're usually synthetic based probably mixed with something else you don't know what you're taking and so it's just a very different use from what you're hearing on the news but when you hear it on the news you're not hearing all the context of that that's true yeah and i do want to include our spiritual counselors as well they hear it as well so don't want yes. to leave them out that's <laughs> and probably true. the aides and volunteers the whole team yeah um likely hears that but i'm sure the nurses and doctors hear it even more often because they're going to be the ones administering or setting up medication that's true yeah, yeah. and with that team that hallie was talking about that's that's another piece that i think falls into that myth is that when you go on hospice Essentially, you have a nurse or a doctor who gives you drugs and then you die within a few days. So to step back and look at that holistically, it's not just one or two people. We actually have a team of experts, and I'm sure mm -hmm. Hallie's talked about that before. Oh, yeah. My whole um, hospice episode. You can go back and listen to that. Yeah, that's a that's a great thing. And, and with that, having the team together, it's so great because they can communicate with each other an aide may come in and help a patient with a bath, a bed bath, for sure. example. And that relationship is a little different from a nurse coming in and administering medication or talking about symptoms. And so we have these multiple opportunities throughout the days and weeks and months that we have patients on service that we can talk to them and we can develop relationships and we're able to learn more about their fears, their concerns, their relationships, their their unfinished business. And it's not ideally something that happens in the last days of life. So, And, and speaking to that, family uh, patients, if they are decisional, mm -hmm. are always involved in the plan of care. There's mm -hmm. never going to be a time when the team comes in, the nurse and doctor come in and say, you must take this, you must take this morphine, you must take this fentanyl. There's always a discussion about what your symptoms are, what we've found to be the best controlled use, and what you're already on. Mm -hmm. Because there may be medications you're on that aren't doing any good and in fact might be making things worse. Yes, and that's that's one of the things when we talk about those myths, it's the besides the morphine myth, the second one is people wait until much too late in their disease process to come on hospice typically and that's one of the things I'm really hoping to change nationally is that people start to understand hospice is not for the last days or weeks it's actually for six months or longer so we typically tell people when you have a prognosis of six months or less left to live that's when hospice is appropriate and getting us in there sooner is so beneficial because maybe you don't have physical pain. Maybe you don't have symptoms that need to be mitigated with medication, but you do have some family dynamics that are complicated. I'm sure Hallie has talked to <laughs> that uh, subject quite frequently. And that's where our social workers come in. Maybe you have some psychosocial pain that you've been going through, and we have spiritual counselors that can come in and assist with that. Maybe you need a little more help at home and having one of the hospice aides come in once or twice a week and provide some support for you with some of your activities of daily living or light housekeeping. So it's that team approach that you get as early as possible instead of waiting till those last few days. And once you get your hospice team in place, you have that team available to you 24 hours a day to call mm -hmm. and make references and get your questions answered as opposed to your regular doctor who you'd be 
seeing before that and they may not have an opening for weeks or or a longer month. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. so you're able to have access to a full medical team immediately when things can often change very quickly yep and that's that's the thing i like to tell people is this is the one type of medical treatment available to us where we as the patient call the shots mm-hmm. we get to say I want to visit. We get to say, I want this kind of treatment. We get to say, I want to have these people help me with these issues. When was the last time you went to your doctor and you said, <laughs> Doc, I want this medication and I want you to spend an hour with me? Yeah. I can absolutely guarantee no one in our audience has ever done that successfully. No, no, I don't. Well, maybe if they're related to the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> maybe if it's your spouse. So we also hear that hospice is a place and it's the place you go to die. And it's true, there are hospice houses, Mm -hmm. and they are specifically designed for people to come to that location. Often it's the last two weeks or last week of life, Mm -hmm. and that's where they end their life. But what we do in our hospice... Just to clarify your words, hospice house is not ending your life. That is where your life may end. Oh, (laughs) In the natural state of things. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Usually the the admission into a hospice house is when that disease trajectory has gotten to the point where the last few days or the last week yeah. are probably happening. And that's when people move in. But- and hospice houses are attached to very specific organizations, which kind of ties into that is not... I've also heard that people think hospice is one thing, kind of like Medicare, mm-hmm. that it's all, we're all one, we're all related, we all do the same things. And that's definitely not true. You can go back and listen to um, more of that. I talk about that a little bit in the original hospice. Is that your first episode? Uh, I think it's the second one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good but one. Go, yeah. go ahead, please. Sorry. So um, our particular hospice, we serve a very large area. We actually have 5,200 square miles that we serve and we come to people's homes wherever home is so you may live in the home you were married in you brought your children up and you've been there for 52 years or you might have moved in with an adult daughter and you live in her in-law unit perhaps you've moved into an assisted living or you had um, an acute illness and you were in the hospital and now the hospital is discharging you to a skilled nursing facility so we come to all of those locations I don't know if Hallie remembers, but we have had some hospice patients that are homeless. They they live in cars. They Mm -hmm. live in campers. They live in trailers. We bring hospice services to those people. So that's another myth that I think people think, well, hospice is only for people with money. It's only for the wealthy. It's only if you can afford it. The great thing is we have multiple ways for hospice to be funded. Mm-hmm. So um, I would say about 92% of our hospice patients are on Medicare. So mm-hmm. they're of Medicare age and Medicare insurance pays for hospice care. And most insurances have a Medicare plan or Medicare type plan for ho- with a hospice benefit. They do. Yeah. Some of them vary. Some of them you have a copay or there's a cap. But we we find that just about every insurance that our patients have, we're able to negotiate some kind of um, arrangement so that they can have that benefit. The other piece that we have that Hallie's very familiar with are veterans benefits. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. So the veterans benefits vary, and that is all determined by the VA. 
Mm-hmm. Well, hospice in general, a hospice organization does not have the say over whether someone is eligible for veterans benefits, but the social workers on the team or the referral center, they are able to suss out if you're already in the healthcare system, if you've been attached to that, or if you're, if you've never accessed that, how you go about applying for that, that can take some time. Uh, veterans do need their discharge papers, their DD-214 to apply for benefits. And there often is a financial component to the decision-making, although there's some exceptions. It also depends on if you're service-connected, and if you are, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) If you're not, you're definitely not service-connected. And uh, if you retired, I mean, there's a lot of different factors. Um, Even when you served can determine whether you're eligible for that service. So, But the VA does have, just like any other insurance, a hospice benefit that if you're eligible for, that it will pay. And the great thing, again, just to blow the horn for our social workers, is that that is a complicated process to go through. Don't you find that when you work with patients, it's a little bit... If they're not already in the healthcare system, yes. And that's where our our, uh, social workers come in. They're very good at helping navigating that path. And they have connections in the community to help patients and patient family members connect with those resources. So we're very lucky to have that. And our patients are lucky to have that, that ability as well. Well, so. you know, we so smoothly moved into other myths besides the one I wanted to start with that I, I don't want our listeners to miss out on the start of the camel talk. Oh, the camel talk. This is really why I wanted you to be on the podcast with me, aside from that you're great about talking about myths, is that you have this really great way of introducing myths to people, and it's regarding camels. So yeah. if you could give us a little bit of that, I would sure. love that. So what I do often is I go out in public and I, I talk to people about hospice. That's, that's my job. And I, I like to inform people with ways that are a little incongruous instead of a boring hospice medical talk. I like to kind of shock people because that often helps them remember. So, um, and it can also be gentle and allow them to be open to hearing it, I think. I think that's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean shock, like physically shock, <laughs> but, but actually give them something incongruous. So about a year and a half ago, I, um, I'll tell you the story of how it came to be, but I, I happened upon a camel and I, <laughs> I fell in love with this camel and I, I became camel focused and I decided I have to teach people about camels. So I, I would bring a picture. I'd, I'd have a, a very large, oh, probably 20 by 24 picture of a camel. I'd hold it up and I'd show it to the audience. I'd say, what do you see? People would say, oh, it's a dromedary. It's a camel. It, it spits. And I'd say, okay, tell me some more. What do you know about camels? Well, the, the upshot is people say camels spit, they bite, they're mean, they kick, and they're untrustworthy, and they stink. So that's... <laughs> I say, okay, I, I, I like hearing people's perceptions. Um, those are myths. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. So let's bring in hospice. What do you know about hospice? And right away, in come those myths. Well, hospice is the place you go to die. It's Morphine expensive. Kills you. Morphine kills you. All those things we've already talked about. So throughout the talk, I actually dispel those myths with hospice. And we talk about the realities of how hospice is helpful, it's a team approach, that insurance pays for it. And then at the end of the talk, I tell people, so remember this camel we we were talking about? And they nod their head. 
and I'll tell them, well, turn around. And they do. And in, in the interim, I have my coworker bring Banjo the camel into the room. And they get to actually meet a camel. And they get to pet him and they get to talk to him and they get to smell his breath and they get to see how sweet and friendly he is. And those myths about him biting and spitting and kicking and smelling badly are dispelled instantly because they get to see and touch and smell what it's like to be around a camel. And that's what I hope we do with dispelling myths with hospice as well. Sometimes people actually have to touch it to experience it to understand it Mm -hmm. and I think out in public when I when I speak to people at least 90% of the time I have audience members come up afterwards and tell me oh my gosh your hospice was so amazing with my father my neighbor my grandmother my sister when she was dying and I can't tell you how great it is I always sing your praises that's why I love what I do because it really is an incredible service that many people don't understand and they don't recognize is available to them. Yeah, absolutely. And Banjo's not a dromedary. <laughs> He's not a dromedary. Banjo's a Bactrian camel. <laughs> yes, my favorite. Yes. All right, let's get um, back into the mist before I took a camel detour. Okay. Because you must. Yes, you always have to have a camel detour every now and then. <laughs> so one of the other big myths I hear is that, well, I thought my doctor had to refer me to hospice. That's what I always heard. So the great thing about our hospice is that anyone can refer anyone they know to hospice. So, and I think that should be any hospice. I mean, they may still have to go through your doctor to get your medical records. Correct. But um, a referral can come from anywhere. The only caveat is you can't say, call up our (laughs) hospice and say, hey, I want to refer my neighbor, Mr. Jones. He's been looking pretty poorly these days. I think he's ready for hospice. (laughs) You can't just refer people because you think they look bad. They actually have to be aware of the fact that you're going to refer them. They have to agree with it. And we will need their birth date. We will need their primary care physician and their consent to actually start the whole process. But it can come from anywhere. It can come from a family member. It can come from a social worker who works at a police station. It can come from a teacher. It can come from a primary care physician. Or the patient. Or the patient (laughs) themselves. We have about, I would say, 56% of our referrals into our hospice come from people themselves for themselves or for their loved ones, their family members. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as far as, um, I mean, obviously we want any informed consent as able, if the person is, you know, suffering from Alzheimer's, obviously then it can be from, uh, hopefully they have a healthcare power of attorney and hopefully. each state has their own laws and that govern who makes decisions if they do not have a healthcare power of attorney. So you've heard me say on this podcast probably 10 other times, please, 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 please make your advanced directives. Please name your healthcare power of attorney because you don't want some random person that's not going to... <sighs> Honor your wishes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's... I take a lot of deep breaths in this podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, you want to know that whoever is going to be making decisions for you when you are not able to, if there comes a time that you're not able, that you've discussed what your wishes are and that they're going to honor them. Because if you just pick someone randomly or you pick a family member that doesn't necessarily agree with what you agree with, you could end up like Terry Schiavo. Yes, and that should be a whole other podcast that we talk about is 
what is an advanced directive? What constitutes one? How do you pick your healthcare mm-hmm. DPOA? So I've got a I've got a lot of opinions about that. <laughs> um, we just actually had a situation with one of our patients whose um, healthcare power of attorney is out of the country, and there were some very important decisions that needed to be made. And it was three o'clock in the morning in the country where this power of attorney lived. And the only way to contact them was via email. And it really slowed down the whole process of making decisions for this patient. So just one caveat, please, when you do pick someone, make sure they are physically close to you or that they can get to you quickly. Because when they're far away, they really don't do you a lot of good. Or have a secondary. Or have a secondary. That's also really important. (laughs) So back to those myths. Um, As we said, we can have anyone be referred to hospice. Mm -hmm. And then the next question, logically, is, but isn't it hard to enroll? I I always heard that hospice is a hard thing to get started. That's what I love about our hospice. It's really easy. You call, you give a name, you give a phone number, you give a date of birth, you let us know who the primary care physician is, and then our referral center takes care of the rest. They contact the doctor, they'll go in the medical records, pull all the records out. Our hospice physicians will review those medical records and make sure that that primary diagnosis that will qualify someone for hospice is accurate. And then we do usually an in-person informational visit and decide when that person is ready to start service. Yeah, I think that informational visit's one of the more key things because it does talk about things that people may think are myths. We want to make sure people are going into their hospice benefit with as much knowledge as they can possibly have. And there may be bumps along the way as you figure stuff out that you didn't know to ask. But our informational visits are pretty comprehensive. And so um, hopefully we set people up for success for their hospice stays by explaining what hospice can and cannot do and Mm -hmm. is and is not able to provide. Yeah, yeah. The other, the other myth that we touched on before is that uh, along with hospice being hard to get the process started, it's also expensive. And as we talked about, hospice is, is paid for by insurance benefits. And most hospices have a, um, some kind of funding or foundation or donors in the community that also provide a little cushion of support to help pay for some people who may have financial difficulties or may not have insurance because of their age or their circumstances. So most of them are also have a payment scale. Mm -hmm. If there's none of those things available, then we'll figure out a payment plan that that works. Yeah. Yeah. That, that will be uh, tailored to each person's financial situation. Sure. So one of the other myths we have. Uh, we talked about pain and we talked about morphine, but people say, well, I, yeah, I have a terminal diagnosis. And yes, my doctor did say that I probably have six months or less left to live, but I don't feel any pain. I'm still getting up. I'm, I'm able to make my own breakfast and I can move around and, and do things. I have a little help on the weekends, but if I'm not in pain, I'm probably not ready for hospice, right? So let's talk a little bit about pain. What kind of pain is there? We think about, well, you hit your thumb with a hammer. That's physical pain. It's acute. It's instant. Often there's some colorful language that goes with that. (laughs) But there's other kinds of pain. 
Yeah, absolutely. There are, you know, emotional scars that may not have healed. You may have existential pain where you're struggling with past issues with your own religion or how you feel about death and dying specifically. You may have a fear of death or a fear of the dying process. And all of those things could be from past experience. They could just be from having a crisis after hearing your diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, you could have family conflict and relational trauma that you want to get resolved before you die. You could have regret in your life. And all of those things can cause you emotional pain, which can also contribute to your physical pain. Mm-hmm. It can manifest. How many of you out there have been in love? So think about think about especially those young years, those teenage years when you have that first crush and that relationship ended and how you physically had that. It was like a roast beef in your gut that didn't digest. It was just a big lump and you couldn't sleep and you couldn't eat. And it felt like there was a frog in your throat. You were going to cry. And every song had some kind of tie to your life and your lost love. That's physical pain. And that happens without actually hitting your thumb with a hammer. Mm -hmm. So our spiritual counselors and our social workers are the ones that can really help with that. So you may not have that physical pain associated with your terminal illness, but you might have some serious psychosocial and emotional pain Mm -hmm. that we can help with. And that's what we're here for. Yeah, absolutely. So just a couple others I think that we we run into, and this is a really good tie-in. When when people think of hospice, they say, well, my mom's dying, so I guess, yeah, yeah, she could use some hospice. But it's not just for the patient, right? Absolutely not. It's for the entire care team, mm-hmm. whoever that is. So if the family member is out of state, we can still be in contact with them via phone. If there are caregivers in the home, you know, sometimes people have caregivers that have been with them for years. Mm-hmm. And so we're not only supporting the patient, but we're there very much to support the people that are supporting the patient. Yeah. Because that's just as important, that connection. And it again, it's that team approach. And every hospice has its own um, specialties. I would say ours is that our team is so great at communication. And we also have support from our integrative therapists, like our massage therapists, our music therapists. We have uh, an aromatherapist coming on board shortly. We also have um, animal-assisted visits with some uh, pet therapists that bring their dogs or their cats, or we have llamas and many horses, actually, that come visit patients. And maybe someday a camel. And maybe someday a camel (laughs) if he ever gets through all his training, which... Some days it seems like that's not going to (laughs) happen. So it's really great to have that whole team approach that helps not only with the patient, but also with their circle of support. And it's really great. You know, some, some hospices, well, most hospices should be able to help you with any problem or at least be able to guide you in the right direction. And I think we're really fortunate for the hospice that I work for that, we are make sure that we have all information for young children and teens and making sure that we provide grief information and bereavement information for those kids, not only while the patient's alive, 
but continue to support that afterwards or point them in the direction where they can go to a grief camp or Mm -hmm. be around other kids that have experienced the loss of a parent. And it can also be important for that patient that has a pet that's been there with them for however many years and feels like that's their support. You know, some people, that's all they have. Maybe they have strained relationships with their family and their little cat is their favorite person in the world and their Mm -hmm. lifeline. Well, we're going to make sure that they're able to stay with that cat while they're going through their hospice experience. And if we're able to involve the patient in the decision to help them plan for what's going to happen to that pet after they pass. Yeah. And that's one of the great things about our hospice is that we are part of a national program called Pet Peace of Mind. And our volunteers are all working together to do exactly what Hallie was talking about. Make sure that the patient gets to keep their their loved family member, although it may have four furry legs, it's still a family (laughs) member, with them and be part of that plan to have foster care and ultimately a new home of someone that they approve of and, and know that their their animal will be well taken care of. And not to be prejudiced against reptiles, we certainly would be able to help family members with those as well. So if your family member or yourself are going on to hospice, you can always ask that organization if they are part of the Pet Peace of Mind program because that is a national program and a lot of hospices are involved with that. Yeah, that's true. Well, um, I think probably the the summary of this is that I would want to really emphasize, learn the hospices in your area. Mm -hmm. Know that not all hospices are the same. Some are Medicare certified. Some are private. Uh, Some of them have a church group or a religious backing. And find out what their services entail. There are certain guidelines that Medicare dictates. One of them is that 5% of patient care must be provided by volunteers. They also say we must provide some type of bereavement program. Well, some hospices, like ours, have a very robust bereavement program, and we're lucky in that the donors in our community support that wholeheartedly, and we're able to provide grief services to anyone in the community they don't have to have been hospice patients or been affiliated with hospice patients. So that's what I love is that we're able to provide things to our community that otherwise they wouldn't have access to. So when you think about what hospice do I choose, vet them, meet them, ask them questions, find out if they can answer things like, how do I care for mom's dog after mom dies? And what kind of grief services do you provide after my loved one has passed and how often can we talk to you about what's going on do you have people 24 7 available to speak with us so those are the kind of things you want to know and you want to make sure that you get to be part of that whole planning process yeah and depending on where you live there may not be more than one option for hospice. Mm-hmm. I recently ran across a, a travel contract I was doing where there was one, and I don't know if there's two, but the, the hospice I talked to uh, covers the entire state of Rhode Island because I forget how small Rhode Island is. It's teeny tiny. Uh, so there may be places that, you know, you only have one option and hopefully they're great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's other places, especially metropolitan areas, that have several hospices available to you. And in those cases, you definitely want to look into, you know, word of mouth is my f- favorite thing. If you know anybody that's been on hospice, what was their experience? 
Now, just like Yelp or any kind of restaurant, there may be circumstances where someone had a bad experience and it doesn't mean that's a bad hospice. But take into account that if you know them and how they are and if you knew anything about what their loved one was going through when they were on hospice, then factor that into your decision, I would say. And, and really, if I could leave you with any message, it would be if you think it's time for hospice, get an informational visit. Get the process started early. The sooner you learn about it, even if you're not ready, and perhaps you don't even qualify yet, but the unknown is what's so painful for us. If we don't know what a diagnosis is, we've got these indeterminate pains and we don't know what's wrong, that's more scary than knowing your diagnosis. So the same thing with hospice care. Know about hospice. Know when you would be ready for it and learn the people around you, learn who they are and what they provide so that when the time comes, you feel comfortable, you feel like I know what's gonna happen and I know they're there for me. And if nothing else, you at least have a plan for the future, even if you're not ready to be admitted right then. Absolutely. Ready for you, ready for your loved one. You just have information, you know, knowledge is power. Knowledge is power, that's great. (laughs) Well, I wanna thank Dana for being here with me today. I think this has been really long coming and informative. I think it's important to get the myths out there and via camel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's important for people to know what's rumor and what's fact. And making a decision based on false information is never, never great. No, it's not. So learn, <clears throat> learn what you have available to you and don't wait. Don't wait. Always call. Call and find out because it can't hurt. It's not going to cost you anything That's to get true. more information. I just want to give a shout out to our latest review on iTunes. Thank you so much, Leon. And I get your Game of Thrones reference. I see you. Reviews mean the world to us. Uh, Review, rate, and subscribe if you can. If you like the podcast, email us at contact at willallbedeadpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at SomedayDeadPC. Because it's important that we get feedback. We need to know what you're thinking. If you have questions about this, if you have a myth that you want to know about, I can certainly try to answer or shoot that email to Dana and get uh, get some concurrent information for you because we want you to have that great information. And not everyone's going to use the hospice benefit, of course. That's completely up to you to use it. Or you may have something sudden happen and not get to use hospice. But... You might as well have the information because someday we'll all be be dead. dead.